Now, this is Box to Box with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgeley. Oh, what a goal! For, For Chemist, Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage moving and Hello and welcome to Box to Box, the show that is everything football. You're with Rob Gilbert and Michael Edgley to run the rule over the past week in the world game. First edition news with Willem van Dender and shortly, and as always, during the show we'll be joined by our former ITN journal turned pundit, Derek Dyson. Now, for obvious reasons, the focus of the show for the past couple of weeks has been on the Matildas and Socceroos, with hopes shattered for the former and holding on by a thread for the latter. But with the Women's World Cup next year and a faint pulse still beating for our men's hopes, of making our fifth straight Men's World Cup. Redemption awaits, which we'll cover when the time comes around. In the meantime, the local focus has been on the A-League as the APL do their best to keep some momentum going with the A-Leagues in another COVID-disrupted season. But one good news story is that one of the titans of the men's competition is showing signs of a giant reawakening as the Melbourne victory after the ignominy of their first ever wooden spoon last season have won the season's first silverware under Tony Popovich. But just as important is the love is beginning to return to the terraces. A man who has covered the Navy Blues since they were founded in 2004, our mate, chief football writer with the age, Michael Lynch, joins us to chart their resurgence. Of course, we'll have all the Matildas and Socceroos news with Willem. Then after yet another thrilling African Cup of Rob Stevens from BBC Sport Africa returns to reflect on Senegal's penalty shootout triumph over nine-time champion Egypt to finally purge the demons of a history of near misses, especially for Aliou Sissé, who nearly 20 years to the day since missing a penalty in the AFCON final coached the Lions of Taranga to lift the continent's most treasured sporting prize. And of course, we'll wrap it up with our extended stoppage time with Derek and with the Premier League and other domestic competitions back up and running after the international break. There will be plenty to talk about. Now, Michael, this is your last week before you return home. You're still in Doha. Uh, Mate, uh, you've been watching the international news, the AFCON final. uh, It was... uh, a thriller um, and a nail biter. Uh, hello, Rob. Hello, Willem. Hello to all the listeners right around Australia and the world. I'm actually back in Dubai uh, doing mm. the um, whistle stop tour on the way back to Melbourne. Looking forward to getting home and um, having a cup of coffee with you, Rob and uh, and Willem. But uh, yeah, Senegal, fantastic. And for a, a country that's almost wholly reliant on tourism, uh, Senegal's, Senegal's economy through the pandemic has been completely decimated. So the people of Senegal were able to um, leave a, push aside their troubles during the game and obviously have a fantastic celebration. The images out of um, the, all of the cities in Senegal was just absolutely oh, mate, They were amazing. I mean, the people climbing onto some of the highest precipices just to get a view. If you haven't seen it, jump online and do some searches. It's scary. It is fantastic, and uh, looking forward to talking to Rob Stevens back in the, uh, the, the the back end of the show to about all of that and more. And what about Melbourne Victory? Um, they're uh, back with a chance to play in my favourite competition, the Asian Champions League. They have an important uh, playoff match against Vissel Kobe, uh, including Iniesta. So uh, they'll have uh, that to get over first. But well done to Melbourne Victory winners of the last FFA Cup, and well done to the Federation too, for renaming the Cup, the Australia Cup. And I think that is a great move moving forward, uh, reach back into uh, the history of the game. And uh, and I think uh, that's a brand that will help that competition grow, Rob. Yeah, no, I agree totally. And Willem was at the uh, the last FFA Cup final. Brilliant atmosphere from uh, everyone who was there, Willem. 
Best in years, Rob. Best in years as a uh, as a Melbourne Victory supporter, which is the capacity I went to that match in. Uh, just magnificent to see the uh, the terrace in full swing. Although I must admit, there's still a little bit of conflict in me given the way the the leaders OSM of the terrace um, failed to denounce homophobia around Josh Cavallo. So I think maybe that's been swept aside and is something that should still be uh, considered. But from a football perspective, uh, yeah, best in years to see uh, to see the victory up and about. Mariners were. Uh, they were good value. That was a bit of an ugly game. We'll chat to Michael Lynch about it uh, shortly. But Michael Edgeley, uh, the Australia Cup from 62 to 68, it was contested back before even the uh, the NSL, the National League. It was then, of course, nearly lost for good in a rubbish skip. Fortunately, it was retrieved and it now sits out at uh, Sunshine George Cross, does it not? It does, yeah. The last winners of the Cup uh, get to hold it, obviously, until... Um, I just wonder whether they will use that same Cup. I hope they do, uh, the Cup that's been in the rubbish tip. Um, I think that would be fantastic. But it just sort of shows you, I think there's a quite a bit of a backstory to the rubbish chip. The, the guy who found it was a football fan, understood the significance of it. So the person who threw it in the tip, maybe not Willem. No, maybe not. Just to round out on those Asian Champions League ramifications, now Victory have won uh, the Cup. They will play Vissel Kobe in Japan on March 15. Sydney FC are the other side who need to go through a couple of qualifiers, so they need to play Filipino side Keo Ilo Ilo on March 8, win that, and they'll play Changchun Yatai of China on March 15. Bit of discussion around Graham Arnold's future this week. A couple of ex-Socceroos and ex-Fox Sports pundits uh, slanging it out in the public, but James Johnson's come out and ruled out uh, replacing Arnie ahead of any potential Intercontinental World Cup qualifiers, but he has said major change is necessary for the game to keep pace globally, Qatar or not. Speaking to the nine papers, Johnson again pushed for stakeholder collaboration on a domestic transfer system and national second division. He also threw his support behind Tony Gustafsson with the Matildas Asian Cup exit being viewed through the context of the broader World Cup cycle. A very interesting uh, extension of public discussion, which we chatted about uh, with Joey Lynch and I wrote about on the box to box website last week. So jump on there if you want to have a look there. But Michael, Arnie's going to be our man uh, to live or die by this World Cup. How do you feel about that? Oh, so he should be too. I mean, we've lost one game out of the last 18 or 19. I mean, I mean, we, we need a reality check. Yes, we're in a bit of a, a slumping form where uh, we win the next two games. We directly qualify for our fifth straight World Cup. If we don't win the next two games, we go through the playoff. There's still a chance to get through that way. I mean, we just need to uh, take a bit of a reality check. We know our squad is not uh, as strong as the golden generation time. We know the reasons for that uh, in terms of all the challenges the sport's had over the last decade around development pathways. But, yeah, Johnson's right to to say that. And Arnie uh, deserves the opportunity to see this one through. Um, And in terms of Gustafsson, he's been talked about extensively. That's um, not too... I mean, I anticipated that would be the case. But just on the Women's Asian Cup, can I just say a a massive congratulations to China. Who would have thought China was going to win the Women's Asian Cup? Their ninth title, believe it or not. They beat Korea after falling behind two goals to nil. And congratulations to Japan, obviously China, South Korea, Philippines, who are joining Australia and New Zealand at the Women's Asian Cup. And Thailand goes into the repercharge, which is, don't forget, we've got those uh, playoff matches uh, in a few months' time in Australia for the Women's uh, World Cup. So uh, Thailand 
gets another opportunity to uh, put its case in the Intercontinental Playoffs. The 4 plus 1 Visa Player Quota is back on the agenda for the A-League men's competition, with the APL to apply to have Asian recruitment entrenched in the game. The idea of an allotted AFC player for A-League clubs was agreed upon in 2015, only to be reversed. Seven Asian Visa players have featured in the league in each of the past two seasons, up from the pretty lowly two that played between 2017 and 2019. Rob, I'll throw to you on this one. Uh, I've done a 180 over the years on this. I thought uh, to have it a few years back would have been just to have recruitment for recruitment's sake. But I think if there's one thing that's improved over my time watching the A-League men's competition, it has been the foreign recruitment. I mean, it used to be a, a running joke that there would just be duds rolling out here and we'd be sold the dream. But it doesn't happen as much now. And I think when you consider... Uh, and these aren't new issues, but when you consider the support we saw for Vietnam in Melbourne two weeks ago, Thailand four years ago, uh, I always remember the Iranian fans who rocked up out of the 2015 Asian Cup. Uh, the word that's used is no-brainer to get this in now. So over the years, I think it's got to come in. Yeah, it sort of feels like that, doesn't it? I remember that 2015 Asian Cup so well um, covered all of the Melbourne games and, and went to some of those great games with uh, with outstanding atmosphere um, and no Australian um, representation uh, on, on most of the occasions the games were played in that stadium during that tournament. So it just gives you an insight in. You give people an opportunity and um, and and they will come, won't they? So uh, to quote Field of Dreams, but no, I, I like it. As long as that balance is is uh, uh, managed and, and the, the young talent, is given the opportunity to emerge in this country. It is what we've seen in the past sort of 12 or so, 18 months uh, during COVID. And we've seen some great young stars emerge and their time will come uh, in, in years to come. But no, no, I, I like the, the changes uh, and I, I hope like everybody else does that, um, that they'll reflect in, in the quality of uh, the football on the park. Michael, how do you feel about that? Do you think the recruitment structures are, are wide enough now and the Asian talent pool is big enough to enforce this? Yeah, I do. And, um, uh, you know, we're part of Asian football and I think this bringing in this line in line with other leagues around Asia. And don't forget, there's some important markets we're not tapping into because we don't have um, uh, content that can deliver an interest. Um, football is the biggest broadcast um, product in the Arab world. The Arab world is 330 million people from the Arab speaking Arabic-speaking countries in North Africa all the way through to the Middle East and the Gulf. Uh, we need to try and tap into that market. Um, we also want to tap into Southeast Asia and Asia more generally, um, over 1.5 billion people in that region. So uh, the future growth of our sport and television rights for the APL is in that region. So um, I think this strategy not only brings us in line with how other leagues operate, um, helps our teams become better in terms of quality, but it also will help reach into the new television audience, which is the, let's be honest, guys, is the future paycheck for our sport. Let's not, uh, let's not shirk the issue. That's where we need, it's where we need to look, it's where we need to be, and it's where, it's the screens that we need to be on. Yeah, and let's not forget, when I do say AFC and Asian, that does extend all the way into the Middle East in a football context. So, no, it is a massive market. And the uh, the old argument that used to get trotted out, just recruitments for recruitment's sake, uh, well, maybe then they wouldn't be trying hard enough. So, no, I'm fully behind it. Bring it in. Grim news for Wellington this week. Uh, the Phoenix General Manager David Dome says the club are hemorrhaging money due to their extended stay in Wollongong. The Phoenix were forced to play Wednesday's match against the victory behind closed doors, unable to find a local sponsor to provide match day costs. Wellington's two previous home matches had seen them draw 568 against Western United and opt to play away to MacArthur instead. And it is a sad situation, Rob, considering last season they did get a chance to play two games at home. They drew 
24,000 and 22,000. So the fans are there. Uh, the revenue source for the club is there. Uh, I went up to Wollongong last year and saw them play against Perth and there was there was a good feel about it. There was a bit of novelty. There was a bit of support, but it was clear that it was temporary and uh, it's no surprise that dragging it into a second season hasn't worked. Yeah, it's been a, a battle, hasn't it? But what choice was there, really? I mean, the the, uh, the travel bubble's been closed by the respective governments uh, in New Zealand and Australia, so they've got to play somewhere. Um, hemorrhaging money is, uh, you know, they're sort of ugly words at the best of times, let alone uh, for a club like Wellington uh, in, in its second season just, you know, battling to stay alive. So, you know, we, uh, you know, we just empathise with them and hope that the entire um, competition can support them. It's just interesting when you hear comments that the, that that the responsibility for uh, uh, securing match day supporters is on the club uh, and not on the competition. I would have thought that in this example that uh, that you know every single uh, person involved in in uh, in football in this country has it bolded on them to, to, to help um, wherever they can because uh, you know no one else is in, in the same circumstance as Wellington are. No, and a final one from me. Chelsea will meet Palmeiras of Brazil in Sunday's Club World Cup final at the Mohamed Bin Zayed Stadium in Abu Dhabi. Palmeiras defeated Egyptian side Al-Ali in their semi-final 2-0, courtesy of goals to Rafael Vega and Dudu, while Romelu Lukaku's goal was enough to see Chelsea past Al-Halal. Neither finalists have lifted the trophy, leaving it as the last one remaining, really, for Chelsea to do so under Roman Abramovich. Uh, they have made the final once, losing to Corinthians in 2012. All right, boys. Well, uh... Well, let's wrap it up there. Uh, we are going to talk to Michael Lynch shortly about the Melbourne victory, one of the positive stories of the A-League in the current season. That is next on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. And a couple of weeks ago, Michael Lynch wrote in The Age, from upheaval to uplifting, how Tony Popovich sparked one of sports' quickest turnarounds. And our mate Lynchy is on the show. How are you, mate? Uh, not too bad, yeah. I um, hope everybody's well and uh, enjoying the uh, the summer. Let's hope it's, uh, well, in the old days, it used to be called an Indian summer when it went on for a long time. But I presume I'm now in danger of being cancelled for using that phrase, am I? <laughs> Mate, well, it, it, who knows? You, you just struggle to find anything that's uh, going to suit the uh, cancel culture um, uh, crowd, mate. So we'll go with it. I don't think it's a criticism of anyone Indian, whether they're from the subcontinent or a native. No, no, no. It's uh, it's a compliment to the uh, temperate climes of the subcontinent, I think. Correct. And, uh, mate, so um, moving along with a, a beautiful segue to the sunny climbs of Amy Park these days, I mean, whether it's raining or sunny, the, the, the stars are aligning for Tony Popovich. They've won the FFA Cup final. Uh, you said in that article that Melbourne Victory or a basket case won the wooden spoon. I mean, no one has watched that club closer since it was founded in 2004 um, and commented on it more than you. So so how do you assess the, the, the how quickly it's been turned around under Popper? Uh, uh, is it the mag- is it the magnetism of the man and his and his capacity as a coach to bring things together so quickly, or or uh, has he had a bit of luck along the way as well? Yeah, blimey, you make me feel really old, older than I am. God, I was still in my uh, early to mid, yeah, early early forties, early mid forties then, wasn't I? <laughs> but uh, when it was founded, I, I remember doing the very first press conference when they stunned everyone by appointing Ernie Merrick. 
as head coach when we all thought uh, Eddie Krenchevich or Stuart Munro were the front runners. Uh, but look, how do I assess the recent turnaround? Oh, you've got to you've got to pay tribute to the whole club from the chairman down um, for hire. For, for addressing what was a completely unacceptable situation. I do have a fair degree of sympathy for Grant Brebner, who I think was asked to do an almost impossible job. Uh, I feel that the club did take their eye off the ball big time in some ways. Um, they also decided that uh, football in the time of COVID was going to be a kind of period where crowds would be non-existent, revenues would fall, um, visibility would decline and it was going to be a period they had to endure rather than succeed through and they cut all the purse strings and didn't give Brebner much support. So I've got a, a lot of sympathy for the position Grant Brebner faced in the last two years. Whether or not you think Brebner was a good coach or, or not, is in, in, the, in the context of this argument, immaterial. I'm just talking about the relative circumstances and the commitment to investment and change that that occurred uh, in those two years compared to what we've got now when they, I think they got the message from their fans pretty clearly. Well, they certainly got a message because the two games last year, uh, last season, uh, I think there was probably less than three or 4,000 that uh, the stadium, which is now known as Marvel, isn't it? You know, for a game against Adelaide, it was pathetic. So uh, they knew they had to do something and fair play. They they absolutely did do something. They went and hired, you know, one of the most successful coaches uh, in, in the local game, uh, Tony Popovich. They decided to create a, an integrated football structure by hiring one of the smartest, shrewdest uh, people in the local game, John Didelitzer, who'd, who'd been disillusioned with football and left. You know, he quit the PFA, do you remember? He went to work in a kind of talent management agency, a sports management agency. He was kind of over all the um, uh, shenanigans that had gone on in the game and the so many false starts. But they lured him back and um, in, in cahoots with, Popovich and, and Tony Popovich went and hired, you know, his coaching support staff. A, a shout out here for Luciano Trani, who's a man that many people who listen to this uh, program will know for his sterling work over two, nearly three decades now at, at lower level uh, in the MPL and, and various other clubs. He has worked in the A League. He worked with Popovich in Perth and he worked with Ricky Herbert in New Zealand at Wellington. So, but Luch Trani is a real grafter. And of course he worked with Kevin Musker in, in Belgium, but he's a real grafter, a man who lives and breathes football. So the point I'm making, I guess, is that they decided to get it absolutely right. And they went for the clean slate and um, yeah, well, the coloring books well and truly colored in, not completely, but um, they haven't really been uh, Put it, put in the shading over the lines yet? You know they they're getting it all right so far, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. And you mentioned the fans. You talk about Marvel, and you know we look back at last weekend. What 
was apparent was that um, the love's starting to come back on the terraces as well. And if uh, there's one thing that football fans do around the world, and they certainly do it in Australia as well as anybody, is vote with their feet. If they're not happy with the way they're being treated in the terraces as well as the performance of their club on the park, they just might turn up. Uh, that was an amazing atmosphere and they were rewarded with, you know, a, a trophy. And uh, and it just it sort of felt like, I mean, not that you can contrast the old days of Olympic Park and the terraces in those early days when we were on the running track and it all emerged, but it, it starts to feel like a giant's reawakening. Yeah, 15,000, maybe I would have expected a bit more, to be honest. I mean, but then people will say I'm harsh and a hanging judge. Well, maybe I am. But, um, you know, I, I would have hoped for a bigger crowd. People will say, oh, Central Coast, they're hardly a draw card. It shouldn't matter. It's the cup final. But having said that, 15,500 is definitely a pass mark and it, uh, and it generated a really good feeling and a good atmosphere around the ground. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was a pretty drab game, I'll be honest, uh, up until that magical moment when Jason Davidson's free kick went round the wall and uh, left Mark Berrigetti rooted to the spot. That, that was a free kick that was worthy of winning any game any cup final anywhere, actually. It was a terrific strike from a dead ball. And, um, and you know, that, that had been coming. Victory had monopolised possession. But obviously, Nick Montgomery had said, said in the post-match presser that they'd wanted to sort of, you know, be committed, defend, make the game tight, deny Victory any chances, a kind of rope-a-dope strategy. And really, for 70 minutes, they had done that, hadn't they? But um, once that goal went in, the Mariners had to come out a bit. Wonderful strike by uh, Chris Economidis. And I thought, well, there you go. Five minutes into junk time, 2-0. No no rewrites are going to be necessary now. And then, of course, <laughs> Holly Bozanich nicks one back. But uh, I think justice was done. Right team won. Uh, and, you know, the difference is... I guess when you looked at the benches, you know, the, the calibre of the players that, that Victory could bring off the bench compared to the calibre of talent or experienced talent that the Mariners had. And that, I guess that's what being a big club, I mean, they're all supposed to be playing under a salary cap. So, so we're told, although, of course, the marquee players are exempt from that. And, uh, and they just got more money to waiver the difference players, haven't they, than clubs like Central Coast and, in fact, almost any club in the league bar, bar the, um, the the King Croesus of the league, Melbourne City. Lynch, to go from 10th last season to winning silverware inside uh, three or four months, really, of uh, Popovich's on-field reigns, magnificent. But what do you forecast for this side going forward? There have been a couple of issues emerging in the league, and maybe that's because their focus has been on the cup, but they've dropped points to Adelaide, dropped points to Sydney, and then have dropped all three to Wellington on Wednesday. So how good do you think this side is? Can there be more silverware, or is it maybe another season of building under Popovich to get to the, the real pointy end? Uh, of, course, of course there can be more silverware. Um, you know, uh, I mean, you can transform... If you've got money and a budget, and we're seeing this at Melbourne Victory, you can transform yourselves very quickly. Do you know what I mean? If you've got the money to hire a, an effective coach and bring in players, you can change things. So, of course, there's a chance of silverware uh, this season. There are only a few points off the top uh, and it's a very congested ladder and, and it does look a bit topsy-turvy because of the, 
discrepancy in the number of games that each of the leading, well, not not just the leading clubs, all the clubs have played. So I wouldn't put it past them winning the um, winning the A League uh, the toilet seat this year. But at the same token, I wouldn't put it. You know, I wouldn't be shocked if they say finished second or third on the table and made the preliminary final or semi, we call it now, and 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 just came up slightly short. Either either wouldn't uh, surprise me, but they'll definitely play finals football and they'll go deep. I would have thought. And would you put it past them to go to Japan and get the result against Vissel Kobe, something they've only done once in their history to win away in Asia? Uh, that's what they've done as a club, but Tony Popovich in Asia as a manager, uh, different story. How do you see that playing out? Yeah, look, um, you'd have to say that the odds are usually stacked against them. When, when's that game going to be? It's going to be on March 15, so another couple of weeks for him to, so, to yeah, bed down. So, on so, so in their favour is that, and we see this all the time. The J League and the K League teams are caught a bit cold in February and March because it is just the beginning of their season, and they're not necessarily match uh, match hardened. So that's probably the best thing you can say in terms of victories uh, prospects. I mean, normally, you know, the wages scale t- uh, of each club. You know, you can look at the wage bill and normally predict where clubs are going to finish in each league. So the Japanese sides have to be hot favourites. But as you say, you know, Popovich proved that he could um, make a make a silk purse out of a relative sow's ear with uh, Western Sydney when he, when he won that Asian Champions League. And I personally feel that is almost the greatest, well, it is the greatest club performance, not just in football, but I think in any sport by an Australian team. You know, they don't. Most of them don't play international games anyway, do they? So they can't really compete internationally. But but for me, that is just an astonishing achievement and uh, should long be lauded. So Popovich will need to get them organised incredibly tightly at the bank. We might see a bit of Roy Hodgson-ness here, two banks of four, and keep it very, very tight. But if you can chisel out a result, that's all that matters. I mean, I know people want to, go on about how wonderful it is to play beautiful football and it is but more important than that is getting the result first and if you can do that and then play well that's the bonus well lynchy it's taken four coaches since the departure of kevin musket to finally get it right uh, in the technical area at melbourne victory uh, it looks like things are on track uh, it's uh, good for the a-league to see victory finally performing the standard that uh, that we expect of them, whether you you absolutely hate the victory or you love them, uh, this competition needs a strong Melbourne victory to uh, to uh, at least be competitive throughout uh, uh, the course of the regular season and, and not the well. That well, there's no, there's no doubt. There's no doubt that no doubt that the crowd aggregates improve significantly when victory do well. And my word, doesn't the A League need it? I mean. What a situation where Wellington just say it's cheaper, it's more yeah. cost-effective to have no one at the game. No, no, it's terrible. Lynchy, anyway. great to talk to you. You enjoy the rest of your holiday over in uh, South Australia. I'm sure there'll be a couple of uh, glasses of red to enjoy in the Barossa or something similar. <laughs> oh, me, me, I just, I just take it a complete beach bum. I just go down the beach and <laughs> chill, yeah. you know. <laughs> I, I do long walks. <laughs> read lots of novels and uh, watch a bit of football. I'll, I'll go and watch. I'll, I'll go to those Adelaide United games when they got victory and 
I don't know, shittier over here, but uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, and it's good. High Marsh is High Marsh. High Marsh uh, is probably the best stadium I feel in Australia to watch football. Given that Amy Park isn't full all the time, Amy Park would be if it gets twenty thousand plus. I think Amy is the best. But in general terms, High Marsh with about eight or nine thousand really does feel like a rocking joint so I like it uh, Suncourt but you need 40,000 there and when did Brisbane Roar ever get that outside of a grand final yeah okay yeah. Well, we, well you enjoy it mate enjoy your holidays we'll talk soon okay stick around we're talking Socceroos and Matildas after the break Box to Box Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse Home of real brands and real savings and Storage King The kings of storage moving and more And this could be the most crucial goal of all this is Box to Box, and always good to chat to our mate Michael Lynch. Never pulls a punch, enjoying his holidays, but still working, even though he's having a break. Uh, soccer and some Matilda's news in a moment. But before we do, right now at Chemist Warehouse, you can get a massive half price off the entire Swiss vitamins range. As you've been doing a lot of travelling, you're going to need some vitamins to get your energy back. How about some Swiss Oh, my little vitamin, vitamin bag is empty. I've been away so long. I'm just going to get off the plane, go straight to Chemist Warehouse, just get the big trolley and just load up, Rob. Love it, because when you do, Edge, you're going to fill it up with Swiss Ultivitamins. 120 tablets for $29.99. Same for the women's multivitamin, Swiss Ultiboost Magnesium. That'll help you sleep, help the muscles. 200 tablets for $21.99. And Blackmore's Eye Folic for the pregnant women out there. 150 tablets. Make sure you get your folic acid, $11.49. You'll also find Swiss Ultiboost Odorless Super Strength Wild Fish Oil, 200 capsules for $17.49. I swear by it, my good mate Gerald Quigley, as well as the pharmacist from Chemist Warehouse. He'll get everybody onto the fish oil and Swiss Ultiboost Iron Plus Probiotic. We all need it for gut health. 30 tablets, 11.25. Will, and where do you get it? Chemist Warehouse, Rob. With the great savings are every single day. Socceroos and Matilda Central, Rob, for the Green and Gold Army. With up to four international tournaments coming up in the next two years, there is no better time to get on board. Qatar 2022, the Men's Asian Cup in China 2023, a Home World Cup in 2023, and then the 2024 Paris Olympics for the Matildas. Michael, I saw you've got that on the website now. You'd be mad to miss out, so subscribe to the mailing list at ggatravel.com.au. How are the various preparations going, Michael? They're going very well, and we're going to probably add another couple in the event. Not that I think this is going to happen, Willem, but uh, in the event that uh, we go through the playoffs, you'll be able to go to Doha and see us play against the UAE. And then once we win that, you'll be able to go back to Doha and see Australia play a South American fifth-ranked team and uh, also the Oceania and CONCACAF playoff game as well. So that'll be a handy little tour. The Matildas, they were back in action in Clubland this week and Kaya Simon played a key role in Tottenham's 4-0 win over Brighton, bookending the scoring with a brace. That win keeps fourth-placed Tottenham within six points of leaders Arsenal, who dropped points to Manchester United with both Steph Catley and Caitlin Ford involved. And Michael, that's opened the door for Sam Kerr and Chelsea. They had a win. They've closed the gap to two points and they'll face off against each other, Chelsea against Arsenal, at 6.45am here in Australia on Saturday. That's Eastern time, of course. So the Gunners just getting the wobbles yeah they get in the wobbles and don't forget chelsea absolutely cleaned them up in the fa cup final didn't they so they'll be uh, that'll be fresh in their memory in mid table west ham were still without tamika yellop following her positive covid uh test case at the asian cup uh so they did however 
get to rely on a big save from Mackenzie Arnold to defeat Emily Gelnick and Aston Villa 2-1. And over in France, Ellie Carpenter laid on a match-winning assist for Lyon in their 1-0 win over Bordeaux. Lyon remained three points clear of PSG. To the gents, Aydin Rustic had arguably his best match in an Eintracht Frankfurt shirt, scoring two goals from outside the box in a 3-2 win over Stuttgart. Rustic came off the bench to net the second and third, including the winner, which keeps them ninth in the Bundesliga. Where do you see him at at the moment, Michael? Just simmering along at club level. Uh, perhaps a little bit surprised not to see him start against uh, Oman, or were you in favour of sticking with the uh, the tried and tested midfield three of the Vietnam match? Yeah, interesting, wasn't it? Um, would the game have been any different? Probably not. I think Aaron Moy had a very good game against Oman, so that probably franked Arnie's decision to run with him and and leave Arjun on the on the bench. Uh, he was suffered from being suspended in the for the Vietnam game, didn't he? he sort of lost his spot. Yeah. But um, yeah, um, well, you know, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Who knows? Yeah, no, look, you're probably right. I actually don't think it had. Uh, I don't think that's where the game was won or lost. So fair call. Uh, Rustich scored against Stuttgart. And speaking of them, they've loaned Alukwal to Bundesliga two-side Sandhausen for the res, uh, remainder of the season. Sandhausen sit 15th of 18th in the Bundesliga 2. And there's also been a loan move for Almabil. He's finally managed to get out of Michelin and now heads to Turkey, where he'll play for Kasim Passa for the remainder of the season. To Scotland to finish, Rob, Celtic still sit a point clear of Rangers following another two match days over the past week. Tom Rogic dazzled with a brace in a routine 4-0 win over Motherwell on the weekend. Before overnight Thursday, Foster Coglu's side were made to work for it in a 3-2 win over Aberdeen. So things uh, ticking along nicely. I think the... Uh, the uh, the, the framework is well and truly in place and they can ride out. Uh, there's there's the thing to fall back on when they, they do go from 2-0 up to 2-all uh, late in the match. Yeah, it's going to be an exciting uh, run home, isn't it? What's there, about 10 rounds left, so you know, one point ahead of Rangers uh, are hunted. They've done well for the first uh, outing uh, as leaders, but uh, yeah, can uh, Ange keep keep it going? Uh, we'll, we'll have to get Kieran Devlin on again real soon and just, just find out what the sense of atmosphere is there in Glasgow. Uh, it must be um, you know, at uh, at Celtic Park, just absolutely pumping. You just watch. You know, I watched the replay of the highlights of, of that um, old firm derby from last week again during the week, and uh, it was epic. Uh, a couple of other Aussies in Scotland at Hearts, Cam Devlin and Nathaniel Atkinson were dropped after a five 0 loss to Rangers, and that failed to do the trick as Hearts went down two one to Dundee in their absence. So I'd be getting those two straight back in. And in Saudi Arabia, Martin Boyle's off the mark with Al Faisley with a goal and an assist during his first outing. Let's have a look at the A-League women's competition. It is heating up as we get into the last month of fixtures. Uh, as we record a crucial match between Perth Glory and Adelaide United for a place in the four. Michael, I don't think we've spoken enough about the Glory, who last season had a, a dismal year on the road. This season, they've done a brilliant job under Alex Aparkas, and it looks like they are in the final minutes of that match. Uh, they are level with the top four or five and right in the mix. Yeah, look, Alex Aparkas has done a great job. He, he got off uh, to a very quick start and recruited um, uh, some very good young players that sort of were on the fringes of the big clubs, and uh, they've gelled together really well. He got uh, an import out of America that's been very good for them. So uh, well done to Alex, especially because they haven't played in Perth. You know, They've been on the road again the whole time. They've had to deal with COVID disruptions. So I think that's one of the great uh, A-League women's coaching performances of the year. Well done, Alexa Parker. She's uh, stature continues to grow, and uh, we'll be watching that club um, over the coming 
uh, years with a bit of interest because he's got a long-term deal. Let's hope he stays there. Uh, and I am hearing whispers uh, with him, whispers that are starting to emerge more so than just whispers that maybe next year's A-League W season will have 22 rounds. Can you believe that? Uh, I can believe it. It's certainly necessary. It's a significant upgrade, isn't it? That uh, It's not like they've added two or three or four rounds there. That's a, that's a full, more or less a full overhaul. Yeah, it's a full home and away season. It, uh, for me, is a very big strategic change because it will allow um, those players uh, that uh, sort of cobbled together a career in Australia and then in North yep. America or Scandinavia to just commit to their Australian clubs and have a proper pre-season, a proper rest of the end of the season. And um, if it's all aligned to the European calendar, it's, uh, it's good news. So let's just hope... The men in that uh, a, a you know the A League uh, organisation, the APL, we just APL. hope that they they follow through and uh, and uh, make that happen because I think that would be a, a major advantage for the competition to expand to a full home and away round. Let's hope so. Another couple of clubs I wanted to touch on: uh, Melbourne Victory. We're always keeping an eye on them, given our association and friendship with Jeff Hopkins on this program. Uh, they look to have stemmed the bleeding a little bit and had a, a two 0 win over Wellington, who aren't the best side, in, or they're the worst side in the competition, really. But uh, there were a couple of new goal scorers. Alana Murphy was maybe a little bit fortunate with a cross-come uh, goal, but Tiff Eliadis as well on the score sheet for the first time. Uh, do you think he's uh, he's stemmed the bleeding, Jeff Hopkins? They've got some key players still sort of unavailable. Um, it, look, it just depends what he can cobble together for the rest of the season. They've got two games in hand on, on uh, the other teams around them, so... Um, with a good draw. I think they've got Canberra and Perth to come if they win those games, which you would expect they'd be favourites to. Um, you know, they're going to finish in second or third and um, and then it's probably a round availability as to what happens in the finals. But correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think Sydney FC and Melbourne Victory have played each other. And I don't think they're going to play each other before the end of the season but um, because of fixtures and COVID and stuff. So, yeah, I, I might be wrong on that one, but... Um, that sets up a big final showdown. Sydney FC, for me, they're clearly uh, the best team, clearly the best team, but uh, Melbourne Victory are probably the only ones who can challenge them. Rob, to the A-League men's Wellington Phoenix, we discussed in the uh, the first segment their issues off the field, but on it, uh, they've clicked back into life. They spent the early weeks on the bottom, but uh, they've had a couple of wins over the past week against teams in the top six. They did MacArthur 3-1, they've done the Victory 1-0, uh, and they've scooted up to seventh, with games in hand on four of the top six, Ufuk Tale, uh, whatever whatever position he's in, he's continued to impress from from up the top, from from down the bottom. He'll always find just a little bit extra. Now, look, it looked like it was an absolute write off, didn't it, for a little while that season? And uh, he, he's he's one of those coaches that seems to have the magic touch, doesn't he? Uh, so, you know, for a bloke to be able to pull a couple of results like that um, in the circumstances that uh, that they're in, yeah, I, I would never count. Wellington Phoenix out and you know we're big fans of, of that club and the importance of them participating in the A-League in um, on this show aren't we so um, yeah so well done Ufuk uh, keep up the good work my uh, my doppelganger in arms I think it was yeah, Ufuk those... on this very program who said you good looking fellas we've got to stick together Rob uh, Michael what about uh, Arthur Pappas and the Jets it just hasn't quite clicked for them as yet they lost Matt Yerman early to a look like a hamstring injury against City and went down 4-2 uh, the attacking intent is still there the imports still look good I think they probably more than any side uh, given how new the project is if you like have been cruel by the sort of stop start nature to the season uh yeah, it just hasn't quite clicked for them yet, but I, I don't think the optimism's evaporated just yet. I think if any club 
in the A-League. I think they were the most affected by the COVID infections. I think everyone got it. So, um, you know, they had a, their momentum was well and truly stalled by the COVID postponements. I think they had, I think they're the, the team with the most postponed games. But um, look, um, Arthur, he got off to a great start. He'll be okay. He'll work through this challenge as he tries to get uh, the team back together. I don't, they were comprehensively beaten against Melbourne City, but Melbourne City, don't forget, have um, some pretty sharp people in the front third. And we saw that, you know, the, the clinical nature of Matthew Leckie and Jamie McLaren really take that game away from them. But, you know, late in the game, it was um, 3-2 and uh, they were, you know, potentially a chance to uh, to get something, you know, in the, in the nine minutes. But, you know, um, yeah, look, I think Arthur's going to be okay and I think that team will be okay and I think they'll get better as the season goes on. And just a final pointer to leave you with, Rob. Under the radar, Sydney FC have snuck up to third and there is a 37-year-old man called Bobo. I've been calling him the corpse in pads because he can't move, but he is still that effective. He's just nodded in three goals in three matches. They've climbed up the table. Uh, you just don't lose your class. The more things change, the more they stay the same, all that sort of stuff. Bobo still scoring goals for fun. Well, well done, boys. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk to BBC Sport Africa's Rob Stevens. He talked to us at the beginning of AFCON and made some forecasts and predictions, and uh, we're going to wrap it all up with him after the break on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. This is Box to Box. Now, we've had a lot of great guests on the show over the years, and uh, one of them I uh, enjoyed listening to while I was on my uh, seaside holiday a couple of weeks ago as the boys held up the end as the African Cup of Nations was beginning. Rob Stevens from BBC Sport Africa did a preview of the tournament, and he's joining us again to review what was uh, a remarkable tournament in Senegal's penalty shootout win over the nine-time champions, uh, champions, the, uh, the pharaohs of Egypt. Welcome back to the show, Rob. Oh, yeah. And Rob, uh, what a tournament it was. It had uh, it had uh, heartbreak with um, the tragedy, of course, uh, with the uh, the deaths in the crushing, uh, at, um, um, and then uh, the, the Cameroonians uh, near miss uh, that they uh, were hoping to bring some joy to, to the country after that uh, happened, and then of course the uh, the head to head between uh, Sadio Mane and Mo Salah when uh, uh, Senegal managed to knock off uh, Egypt. Did, did the tournament manage to meet all of your expectations yeah I, I would have said so of course you mentioned there the the tragic crush at the Alembe Stadium which will overshadow the tournament and questions still linger about the organization who is to blame for that uh, in terms of on the pitch I'd said it was a good tournament it got off to a very slow start it was very low scoring to start with uh, fingers were pointed at the uh, lack of preparation for that and disruptions because of coronavirus there were only something like a uh, nine goals in the first 12 games with several goalless draws and a lot of one nils. But eventually it warmed up. The football became better. Uh, and and there were some really good matches. There were some intriguing storylines. There was plenty going on. There were some minnows that got through to the uh, the last 16 in the quarterfinals. And in the end, you got a, a brilliant narrative in the final of Senegal looking for their first title uh, with Sadio Mane and Egypt, uh, led by Mo Salah, looking to make it eight their eighth continental title, two Liverpool teammates going up against each other. Uh, it was a shame in a way that Cameroon, the host, didn't get all the way through to the final. It might have been a better matchup between Senegal and Cameroon, two more attacking teams. Uh, but in the end, I mean, there was plenty of, plenty of intrigue and plenty of storylines all the way to the final. 
Rob, in my opinion, one of the great storylines which seems to have reached a nice natural conclusion now is the success of Aliou Cisse as Senegal manager. Uh, globally, he's known as the legend of the 2002 World Cup run, but internally he's a bit maligned from what I've been reading. He blew it in the shootout of the 2002 AFCON final. He coached them in the 2019 final loss. So it's been a long haul for him, but uh, it seems that he's now got his reward. Yeah, very much so. Everyone's aware of that Senegal team from 2002 beating France in the first game of that World Cup and making it all the way to the quarterfinals. What not everyone would have known that he missed that penalty in 2002, the uh, the AFCON final against Cameroon in Mali. Uh, that was really Senegal's first golden generation, uh, and Ali Ousise had to had to live with with that miss uh, for for much of his career. And when he was appointed in 2015, he was taking over from the Frenchman uh, Alan Jures, and a lot of African countries have have always looked to Europe or to South America for their coaches and necessarily don't bring through coaches from from their own country or don't give opportunities to to, to home-based coaches uh, and for Ali Ousise he's dealt with a lot of criticism uh, losing that final three years ago to Algeria it was a narrow match these things can happen in finals they lost one nil uh, but among his critics were his ex-teammates, Kalilou Fadiga and El Hadjouf were two of the most vocal ones saying that uh, Senegal would never win anything under Ali Cisse. So for him, I think it's a, it's a personal redemption in a way to having been part of those two lost finals for Senegal to finally bring them over the line. And I mean, he would have went through the mill again, having seen Sadio Mane miss that seventh minute penalty in the game failed to find a way past the Egypt keeper, Gabaski, always been slightly vulnerable on the break. Uh, Egypt didn't have many chances, but they uh, they went close on a few occasions. And then to go to a shootout and, um, uh, and take the advantage, but then see one saved and then finally have that moment, uh, it was absolutely incredible. And you saw some incredible pictures of, of celebrations in Senegal as the team came back to Dakar. And there was one brilliant photo uh, that I've seen of of Aliou Cisse uh, on top of the coach that was driving the players back through to the centre of town, holding the uh, the trophy aloft and being absolutely surrounded by these these joyous faces of Senegalese fans who've waited so long uh, since independence for for this triumph. So triumph for uh, for Senegal, penalty pain for Egypt, but also penalty pain for Cameroon, who you touched on. Uh, from what I saw, I thought they were probably the most entertaining side in it. I thought Abubakar and Toko Akambi sort of played an old school sort of two striker partnership, sort of quite muscular and would just bang them in for fun. Uh, they look to be sort of writing themselves into the history books, those two guys there. I don't think anyone else scored for the side, but the penalty shootout at the culmination of it was awful. Did maybe the pressure of the, the hometown fairy tale and maybe the, the sadness of the, the deaths in the last 16 match maybe just get to them a bit in that moment? Yeah, I would have thought so. I mean, you mentioned that they were the entertainers. They were definitely the highest scoring side there, even hitting three in the, um, the third, fourth place playoff because um, it was a low scoring tournament. There was only about 1.92 goals per game in it. Uh, but Cameroon, yeah, I think for that for that semi final, um, they obviously came up against a side in Egypt who were, who were spoilers, um, despite having the t- the talents of Mohamed Salah, um, and they they just they just couldn't find a way to take their chances during the game. It was half chances in the first half that they had, and then as the game wore on, they they really struggled to break down the Pharaohs. Um, I I think as you mentioned there 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 was that was the first game back at the Alembe Stadium after. After the tragedy, there were probably question marks. There were certainly eyebrows raised uh, when it was decided to go back there. But that was the landmark stadium that was built, uh, a 60,000-seater to to host the final 
uh, and, and many of the big matches. Uh, on that occasion, there were only something like 24,000 people in there because of the stricter security and people wanted to stay away probably from it. And yeah, you, we, the penalty shootout, two of them were, were two of the worst penalties I've seen in terms of technique from uh, Harold Mukudi and Clinton and G. Uh, I, I think the one in the middle, the James Lear Saliki, was a really good save by Gabaski. But it's, it's difficult to criticise players because of the, the amount of pressure that's on them. Uh, we've seen it so many times in shootout. I mean, England, uh, for one, last summer in Euro 2020 final, players, you know, you've got to be brave to step up to the spot. And for these these players, it's a difficult one. You're on home soil, the pressure's on you. And, and sadly, they, they didn't necessarily take their time, go through their processes. I'm never a fan of a straight run-up or a two-step run-up. It, obviously, it's going to look great if you score, but... For Mukudi and Clinton and G, they'll they'll have to sort of live with that trauma and, until the next penalty shootout, basically. Rob, can I go back to the Pharaohs quickly? Uh, did they miss a trick here? I mean, I know that their pro, pro, uh, progress through the tournament was relatively based around very negative uh, tactical football. They, of course, had to win two penalty shootouts just to uh, to get to the final, and it, it felt like that they were playing for that again, more or less from from the starting whistle, that ball was only in play for 44 minutes out of the 90, which is a pretty shocking statistic. And and one thing that they'll regret is uh, Salah didn't even get a chance to take a penalty at the end and possibly should have been earlier up the uh, up the order. Do you, do you think they messed this up? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's happened before with uh, Cristiano Ronaldo and Portugal. Um, it's difficult because these, these big players want to sort of be the anchor to take the take the game, take the glory, possibly win it. I think it, it's tricky because their first penalty shootout against uh, the Ivory Coast, they didn't make a single mistake. Uh, Abdel Monam, the, the first man to miss, had, had been brilliant with his first penalty in the uh, in the first match as well. So uh, in actually both, both of their shootouts against the Ivory Coast and Cameroon. So uh, again, I mean... I think Egypt did very well to get through to the final. Uh, they're, they're probably their best performance in the knockout round was against the Ivory Coast in the round of 16, where uh, they, they hit the post a couple of times and, and, and really should have scored. Um, the Morocco game, again, they were up against the side uh, who, who like to keep things tight. Uh, and on that occasion, Mohamed Salah came up with, uh, with, with the goods, with one goal and then a, a moment of quality set up the winner by Trezeguet. They were hampered slightly by injuries to some of their players. Trezeguet wasn't fully fit after being injured for a year. They didn't have their first choice goalkeeper. They didn't have their first choice centre-back in Ahmed Hergazi. But they were still a side who, who really lacked flair. And, and actually, they're, they're at a bit of a crossroads because they face Senegal again in the uh, playoffs for the World Cup next month. And uh, on the balance you'd probably say that Senegal's a favourite to, to get through. So for Egypt, they could be missing out on, on the World Cup. And for Mohamed Salah, that could be a double disappointment to deal with. Rob, who was the biggest loser at the African uh, Cup of Nations? Was it Nigeria exiting at the round of 16 stage? The Super Eagles have been such a, a power in uh, African football. Was that Were they the biggest losers? Uh, they were probably up there. It was interesting because after winning all three games in the group stage, they were the only side to do it. And we we, we were thinking they could go on and become one of the favourites. And then they put in a really disappointing display against uh, against Tunisia in the last 16. I, I'd say two others probably uh, outdo them. One is Ghana, who uh, we meant, we talked about in our preview. And, and we I, 
I kind of pointed and said they, they kind of lacked the leaders or the big names of, of the past. And that kind of proved in in their matches in Group C where uh, they lost to Morocco, they drew, uh, they drew with Gabon, and then they were beaten uh, humiliatingly by the debutants Comoros, uh, the small island nation from the Indian Ocean. And, and that was really a landmark defeat for Ghana, uh, four-time champions to be knocked out in the group stage and in such by by minnows by debutants in that way. So so they're one team that uh, that missed out. They sat their coach Milovan Rajavac uh, after that, and they've just appointed Chris Hutton, the former Brighton, Newcastle, and Nottingham Forest boss, to their technical panel for their World Cup qualifier. Uh, the other side is Algeria, the defending champions who were tipped to maybe defend their title uh and they really went out in in very disappointing fashion they uh drew 2-2 with um sorry they drew 0-0 with uh, Sierra Leone in their opening game then they lost to Equatorial Guinea two of the lesser lights of African football and then they were beaten by Ivory Coast in their final game with Riyad Mahrez uh, missing a penalty in that one and that was really a a disastrous title defense uh they blamed all sorts of things they blamed uh, a few covid tests uh, they blamed the tropical heat in Cameroon for their first, as a factor in their first game in uh, uh, the draw with Sierra Leone. Uh, and really, we expected much more from, from Algeria, but they've had a history of underperforming in sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, these some of these teams now face very difficult uh, World Cup playoff matches. Algeria face Cameroon. Uh, Senegal, we mentioned, face, uh, face Egypt. And Nigeria face Ghana. So some of these big names are going to be missing from the World Cup in Qatar later this year and could find themselves at even more of a crossroads uh, for the next phase of, of, uh, of world football. Before we let you go, Rob, uh, um, a quick prediction for Qatar. Do you see, we know it'll eventually happen that one of the African nations will break through into semi-finals and finals of the World Cup. That's uh, a given, but is it too soon to expect that that might happen uh, in this edition of the World Cup? Uh, in a word, pro- probably yes, but I think Senegal, having been the hosts, uh, sorry, having, having been the champions this time round of this AFCON, I think are the best equipped team in terms of their squad. You look at the spine of Edouard Mendy, Khalidou Koulibaly, uh, Idrissa Ghana Gay and Sadio Mane and, and the supporting cast. They are the best place to, to go far in Qatar, but they've got to get past Egypt. The, the, the fact is that the only five African teams are going to be there and quite often they get very difficult draws. Uh, Nigeria have had a, a decent shout at a few World Cups, but always seem to get picked in with our Argentina in the group stage and struggle to get out of it. Um, so I think Senegal are the best place. Maybe after that, it'll be Cameroon or Algeria. Whoever gets through that tie uh, might impress. But uh, the others are, are just rebuilding. The first challenge is always to get to Qatar. Uh, and then after that, uh, you know, it depends on the draw. So it, it's going to be difficult. I think Senegal are the best ones if they get there. Well, Rob, we might ask you to join us a little closer to that event so we can do an analysis on just what uh, the hopes are of the teams that eventually do qualify and expectations when uh, we're only uh, weeks perhaps away. Rob, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, It was uh, a fascinating African Cup of Nations. World football lovers uh, just enjoy it every time it comes around and and this one didn't disappoint. So uh, thanks again for joining us and and bringing your insights uh, uh, on the tournament uh, to the listeners of Box to Box. No worries. My pleasure. AFCON always impresses in one way or the other. It sure does, mate. Rob Stevens from BBC Sport Africa. Okay, stick around. It's stoppage time next. Plenty more to talk about on Box to Box. Box to Box. Can you believe it? 
Brands. For Chemist Warehouse. Home of real brands and real savings. And Storage King. The kings of storage, moving and more. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Yes, this is Box to Box. This is stoppage time. We've got plenty of time left. Uh, as much as we want to have a yarn about uh, all the big stories. And who says we don't cover the big clubs on Box to Box when Derek is going to come off the long run about two of the juggernauts of international football, Boreham Wood and Kidderminster. How are you, Derek? Oh, very well, gents. Thank you very much. Yes, the magic of the FA Cup is well and truly alive this weekend. Uh, Boreham Wood, they knocked out Bournemouth in a stunning performance away at Bournemouth as well. Um, Boreham Wood are a very, very well-run club. Uh, they're in the National League, so that's the fifth tier of English football. So four tiers separating them and ex-Premier League side Bournemouth. And look, I almost want to say this was one of the more predictable shocks because Boreham Wood are in great form. They're, they're definitely rising through the leagues. And look, you know, the, the FA Cup is an important trophy, but Bournemouth season is all about getting back to the Premier League. So when I saw the result overnight, even though I, I would still say it was a shock, I uh, I wasn't surprised. And, and 1,400 travelling fans uh, went delirious at the final whistle. And their manager, uh, Luke Garrard, he's called, uh, he will now take his team to Everton to place Lampard. So it's Garrard versus Lampard. <laughs> Those two couldn't play in this middle of England's midfield. And now it's... Uh, now they're going head-to-head at, uh, at Goodison Park, so a brilliant reward for them. On the other hand, West Ham United overcame what would have been the biggest scare of the round. They were losing 1-0 away to National League North side Kidderminster Harry as the carpet men, as uh, as Willem has uh, called them uh, in the past. And uh, yes, 1-0 down. Only seconds left on the clock, and Declan Rice, who had come on as a substitute, really as a last throw of the dice from David Moyes, managed to nick a goal. And then they were only one minute from a penalty shootout. And uh, the rules have changed in the pre- in the uh, FA Cup with COVID that we don't have replays. Fixtures uh, list are too congested, so we go straight to extra time and penalties. So the sixth tier opposition nearly knocked out the uh, the uh, top flight team. Uh, it would have been the first time that had ever happened in the Cup's history. But Jared Bowen, who's been in great form all season, let's be fair, uh, did, uh, got the job done for West Ham. I'm sure a lot of relief around uh, East London. But it was a great um, was a great round of fixtures. Forest, of course, routed their local rivals. Leicester, it was an absolute capitulation from them. I'm feeling better now about Arsenal's loss to Forest earlier in the competition. <laughs> Another shock of sorts was United's, uh, Manchester United's loss to Middlesbrough on penalties. Uh, had to laugh at Ronaldo's penalty. You know, uh, we're going to talk about bad penalties, I think, uh, later on. But uh, when we talk about Premier League, but one of the worst penalties of this season from Ronaldo. Very funny. Um, and Borough probably shouldn't have had their goal, but they went through uh, on penalties eight seven. Uh, so great, great news for. For Borough, Max Rushton's Cambridge, who was another one of the fairy tale stories of this FA Cup, went out to uh, Luton and Chelsea, were really, really kept honest by Plymouth. And Plymouth did have a penalty in the last minute to take it to extra time to get it to two all. And unfortunately for them, it was missed. And Chelsea 
squeak through as well. So, Rob, the FA Cup, you know, it keeps getting keeps getting pushed down the queue. But I tell you what, what a what a round of fixtures. Yeah, but when you see those results like Boreham Wood and Kidderminster and uh, and even the Forest result, as you say, um, it was against a, an understrength opposition who were probably not taking the FA Cup as seriously as they try to get their Premier League uh, campaign back on track. But the, 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 you just look in the stands and you look at the emotion of uh, the players after results and the, the heartbreak in particular, you know, Kidderminster, those guys, they uh, they were just distraught at the end of that match. But, uh, yeah, no, it's still got uh, plenty of love, the FA Cup from G football fans but the Premier League has resumed after the international and FA Cup breaks uh, so we've we've uh, got most of the midweek round underway as we go to air. We do and it has been extremely entertaining this past week I mean I'm obviously going to start with Tottenham chucking away two two leads to lose 3-2 to Southampton probably one of the best performances that they've ever done Southampton under uh, Hootel and Che Adams there with the winner for three-two. Uh, one of the most significant uh, results in the in in the, in the midweek was obviously Newcastle's move out of the bottom three. They beat Everton and Frank Lampard. Lampard, of course, had won his first game in charge in that FA Cup, and and things looked pretty good. But despite taking an early league, they lost three-two. Capia scored a brilliant free kick to seal seal the victory. And as we said, Newcastle now move out of that bottom three. How significant is that? We were talking to Garby earlier uh, in the year and I'd written Newcastle offers already down, but there you go. They've spent some money, seems to uh, have been rewarded. Uh, we were talking about the terrible penalties. The one, don't know if you guys saw Wilfred Saha's attempt for Crystal Palace against Norwich. It was a truly awful penalty. Puki uh, Edge's man uh, gave... Norwich the lead, Palace equalised, but then Zaha from the penalty spot. It was just, you know, again, made all of us, all of us old cloggers uh, feel a lot better about that. Uh, Watford lost because West, West Ham managed to build on their victory over Kidderminster uh, and just and managed to, to get that victory over Watford. Bowen scoring again. So not looking good for Norwich uh, and Watford. Uh, and look, the other games, Manchester United didn't have a good time of it at, at Turf Moor against another one of the sides in trouble. Burnley, what could be a precious point for them and Jerry Rodriguez's first goal in in some time. Uh, you know, rounding it off, City won their 12 points clear at the top of the Premier League and Aston Villa and Leeds shared a very entertaining 3 all draw. Lots of really, really good goals. And speaking about the Premier League edge, just wanted to believe you've got a line on the Premier League and South American rights. What's the go there? The Premier League secured a £250 million broadcast rights deal for South America, which is a increase of 35% on the previous term. Um, it, just, just the, it just seems that the international demand for the Premier League broadcast uh, content just continues to chug along and not uh, doesn't seem to have any ceiling. So that is a big increase uh, on the term for the South Americans. Obviously, so many South Americans play in the Premier League, don't they, Derek, that there's obviously a growing appetite there. Also, talking about the broadcasters, BT Sport and Eurosport, they seem to be doing something interesting too. Yeah, BT has entered an exclusive negotiations with Discovery to finalise a 50-50 joint venture that would 
CBT Sport and Eurosport UK merge under one umbrella. It's believed that the Premier League and UEFA, Europeans football governing body, need to sign off on the deal. But if they do, that's one less streaming service football fans need to buy to get their content because there's a number of of uh, a number of different uh, content and leagues will be merged into one platform, which makes a lot of sense if you're a football fan. And uh, probably, you know, B- BT is a, t- is a telecommunications company, so they've probably woken up and thought, well, what are we doing in the sports rights market when we should be making the telephones work in England? Just one sort of final topic for us to cover before we, we sign off for a, another show. But a lot of controversy bouncing around the world of football uh, recently, look when I when I have a look at this segment, I always try and bring the positive stories, the best of the game. We we have to feel obliged at times to cover the worst of the game as well. We've had Wayne Rooney making some very interesting statements in interviews, saying that he spent quite a lot of his career at the bottom of a bottle because uh, he couldn't cope with the pressure. Deliberately going out to injure John Terry in a game. I don't have any personal problems with that, to be honest with you. Um, but yeah, Wayne Rooney's been saying some. Some interesting stuff. Kurt Zuma, of course, you know, he's been hounded by the RSPCA and being fined over the abuse of his pets. You know, don't even know what to make of that as a story. Well, and of course, um, that he's he's all, he's had uh, Adidas um, ditch him as a sponsor. And so after he was shot uh, kicking and slapping his pet cats, yeah. which have been taken off him. So that's a disgusting story from that. Awful. Yeah, and of course, he didn't play and he was dropped from West Ham's latest game and quite rightly so. And then we move on to two ex-Arsenal players, Mark Overmars, of course, and from the 90s and Graham Ricks, who's a legend from eras before that. I mean, do you want to tell tell our listeners what's going on there, Edge? Yeah, this is not nice stuff. This is Mark Overmars, obviously the former Arsenal and Barcelona winger, left his job as Director of Football Affairs at Ajax. Suddenly, after it was revealed, he sent a series of inappropriate messages to several female colleagues. He's been in that role for over 10 years and overseen remarkable success. And the club, uh, Edward van der Sar, uh, who was the CEO, was incredibly scathing of Overmars's behaviour. And uh, once it was exposed, he had no option but to resign. Just one of the, uh, one of the things in football that is uh, unfortunate. But the next one is equally as uh, a very difficult story to digest this one, Graeme Rick's... Um, as a player, Rick's obviously went all the way to the top, spending 13 years with Arsenal, winning 17 caps for England in the national team and playing five times at the World Cup. He is a big name in English football. Um, he must be a pretty decent coach as well because when he was sent to prison in 1999 for having sex with an underage girl, Chelsea kept the job his, his job open as assistant to Glenn Hoddle until and they welcomed him back as soon as he was freed. So he must have been some coach. But um, last week, Chelsea agreed to pay substantial damages to four of their former players who were suing the club with a high court trial due to begin on March 7. The details of the legal action are shocking, including one allegation of a, of a trip in Spain in the middle of a heat wave when Ricks punished a black outfield player for not putting in more effort by substituting him with a reserve goalkeeper. It was a clear way to humiliate the player, and it was after this match that Ricks was alleged to have shouted at the teenager in front of his teammates that he should have realised blacks were always winning the long-distance Olympic events in the heat if they weren't chucking spears. So uh, time has caught up with Graham Ricks, um, and he um, was... uh, um, uh, his indiscretions were laid bare for all to see and Chelsea's own legal department have handled 
the case rather than the lawyers of their uh, appointed insurers. Uh, indication the club didn't want to participate in a six-week open legal hearing where it was expected up to 60 witnesses were going to be called to give evidence against risks. So God knows what else happened in the, in his time at Chelsea. So, I mean, these sort of stories in the game will continue to emerge as social uh, social issues evolve, but um, they're both pretty nasty and uh, tasteless activity, Rob. No, oh, exactly. It's uh, these are not the sort of stories we want to read, but at least they're out in the open, and um, you know some of these people have got uh, you know these sorts of skeletons in their closet that are being exposed, um, which is you know I guess that has to be a good thing. So uh, you just hope that um, that it'll stop them in some ways, as much as it stops their career. Let's sort of move on to a slightly lighter note to wrap this up, Derek. Um, how do you want to bring this up? Oh, look, I just wanted to go with one line that I saw during the week. Uh, I'm thinking about you, Rob, ex-Liverpool player, amongst many others. Uh, uh, Jordan Sakiri is leaving Leon for a club record fee um, and he's going to the Chicago Fire. So he's going to MLS and he's still a relatively young man uh, in, in his career. He's, he's not, he's not, you know, over the hill by any stretch. I'd, you know, and I'm for full disclosure, I am hardly uh, one to talk here about um, body shape, etc. But I just wonder how how Shakiri is going to go over in America with all those, uh, you know, extra triple large Big Mac meals, the big thick milkshakes, and all the other delights that will await him when he gets stateside. And I'll be very interested to just keep an eye on his on his waistline. But no judgment here, fellas. <laughs> so why why do you um, suggest that he's going to be particularly vulnerable to, to this, Derek? I mean, enlighten those of us who are unaware. Well, I mean, he's just been particularly vulnerable to this all of his career. But, I mean, I just think, you know, you know, uh, America is the king of the hot dog. It's king of the nachos. It's all the things that I presume Jedran uh, really likes. And I just think, you know, <laughs> potentially going to a farmer's league, he maybe doesn't have to train as hard. I mean, he's driving down that, you know, down that highway at night time, and he sees those golden arches lighting up his eyes. I just think, you know, he'll be he'll be he'll be pulling in. That's a fair play on Jordan. All right, well, boys, let's wrap it up there. What did Jurgen Klinsmann say when he first moved to America? Obviously, Jurgen Klinsmann's lived in America for fifteen years or so. When he first moved to America, he said, he said, I thought I was moving to America to enjoy a lifestyle, but uh, I realised I only need to eat once a week. <laughs> All right, boys, Michael, we're looking forward to seeing you back in Australia soon. Safe travelling. Yes, Rob, um, I'll be back and um, just make sure you uh, get the barbecue fired up, brother. Oh, we've got a restaurant. We're going out to uh, that Lebanese restaurant in Malvern that we went to last time. I don't need any more food. Lebanese food, Rob. Oh, you're going to get it, boy. See the you tongue. in a few days, mate. Yes, yeah, I love that garlic. Uh, Derek, thank you. Yeah, thanks, gents. Well done. Uh, Willem, um, thank you very much, my friend. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, gents. Until next weekend, Damo. Well done. Pressing the buttons, as always, making us sound as good as we possibly can. And thank you to our listeners. We are always grateful for your support. Please subscribe to box to box wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook. And make sure you join us next week when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.